welcome to Church of the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. studies out there that say how many choices we make in a day. 
I hear all the time people will say, well, I want to be more like Jesus. And I'm like, okay, how often are you reading Scripture? And it's so little. Your knowledge is so small. You need to increase your knowledge. But the other component of wisdom may be that we just don't apply it well. And I would say this is the, this is the case for most Christ followers, where we'll express the gospel, we'll say that we live for Jesus, we'll say that he died on the cross for my sins, we'll say that I know that he rose from the dead and, and he offers me freedom. He offers me the ability to live a life that would be worthy to be called a Christ follower and be glorifying to him in every way possible. However, that knowledge oftentimes isn't applied well and we make decisions and then the decisions that we make lead to something that we don't or a place that we don't want to be and then we have to answer the question that wasn't the right decision. So what James is attempting to do here is help us understand that the path of our life is dependent upon the decisions that we've made and how well we've applied the knowledge that we have and that you would call it wisdom. So, one of the things I like to tell Christ followers is you're never stuck. Ever. And I love that. It's one of the things I love about Jesus is you're never stuck. You're never stuck in a position where you go, I just, I have to be here. I have to do this. There's moments when the Lord will call us to something and we say, I get to enjoy, maybe serve the Lord in this environment or whatever it is. But if there's some component of my life that seems to be destructive or it's causing pain or there's issues Something's happened to us, and we're, we're trying to get through it and get over it. The Lord says, you're never stuck. Because every single day in Jesus is a new day. Meaning whatever's happened in the past, he says, I paid for that on the cross. And so now we move forward. Right? What I found is that oftentimes, it seems like Christ followers will make the same decision over and over and over, and then begin to complain about the results of those constant decisions, and then they ultimately turn that on the Lord and go, why aren't you moving? And I would think the Lord would say, well, why are you making the same decisions? I'm giving you all of the knowledge that you need. It's the application of that knowledge and your choice and your wisdom that's causing the pain. You're never stuck, ever. The other thing I found interesting about this is James creates this scenario where he's saying we can look at is wise based upon what's going on in their life. And you want to see somebody wise, then how do we know? Well, I don't typically, if, if I want to say, if I'm going to have somebody mentor me, or I say, man, this is an individual who I really want to become more like, or there's an aspect of this person in their character that I would really love to develop in my own heart, in my own life. Typically, I don't, and I don't ask them questions. Typically, I don't go, tell me the rules that you follow that's, that are going to lead me to this, right? It's not, you don't admire somebody because they just follow a bunch of rules. You admire somebody because they take their belief and they apply it in ways that seem natural, and the product of that is good, right? It would be weird to, like, walk up to somebody and be like, Hey, I see that your life is, is good, and I see Jesus in it. Can you just give me a list of rules to follow? And nobody asks that. Why? Because nobody wants to live by just law. Right? James is saying, look, you, you can see the evidence of wisdom in somebody's life just by the day-to-day decisions that they're making and the outcome of those decisions. Are the outcomes good? Are they free? 
fruitful? Are they pushing this individual closer to Christ? And he's going to get specific there. Or are we calling somebody wise and looking at the outcome of their life and we're realizing that they're just an absolute mess? We do that all the time. We'll elevate people because of maybe something that they have. Wow, this person's really, really wealthy, so all they're going to see is the most amazing thing in life. They're really solid. Right? Um, we do this with famous people. I don't know what it is about, like, people that we elevate up that are famous. So it could be, you know, musicians. It could be act, uh, actors. It could be whatever it is, right? It's whatever our culture says. This is somebody that we have elevated up to say extremely talented. Just because somebody's a good actor doesn't mean that their life is wise. I think what happens in, like, Hollywood is we fall in love with the characters that they're playing, and then we expect them to be those characters. I I was reading something the other day, and they're like, these are the, and I don't don't scroll a lot, but it's like, these are the the ten most difficult actors to get along with as just people. And some of them on the list, I was like, no. Like, I love that role you played. You were so nice in the movie. Right? And it's like, oh, it's so disappointing. But what we do is we'll take people and we'll go, because they, they have something in their life that we admire, we'll believe them to be wise in every other area, and therefore we'll raise them up or attempt to emulate them, right? And then oftentimes that becomes very disappointing. I'm, it's Father's Day. I'm a father. There's certain things that I hope my kids will look at me and go, moments, Dad, shows wisdom, and these are things we want to emulate in our life. But there's also some things that I would go, hey, this probably wasn't the best of decisions. Right? And you can ask them about those. I'm sure they'll be more than welcome to tell you. So, let's process through the marriages for a second before we move on. How's your life going? Like, when you think about of your life, you think about the way that people are responding to you. You think about how you're living, what it feels like. You think about the dreams and the, the aspirations that you have, the goals that you've set. How's it going? somebody look at you and say, based upon your life in Christ, that's a wise individual. One of the other things before we move on that I've also found is it seems like the least wise tend to be the ones that talk the most. Um, I was talking to somebody from the South, right? And whether you're from the South or you're not, I, I mean, it's a different culture. I know this is in Utah, but to go South. It's just different. It's just a different environment, a different feel. And I said, I don't, I, I know that oftentimes, like, maybe because of the accent or whatever, the people in the South, they can come across as ignorant. And I go, I don't, people, people in the South aren't ignorant. They're educated. But the problem is that they can't seem, and we do the same up here, we can't seem to keep the most ignorant among us from being the loudest. Isn't that fascinating? 
it's the most ignorant and the most unwise that seem to be constantly speaking the most. And a small group of people who are pushing an agenda oftentimes are much louder and don't represent the larger populace just because in their ignorant around people that say, I have to say everything that comes to my mind. Because my body tells me to. Like, you don't want to say everything that comes to my mind. And I, I'm always so grateful people can't read my mind, right? But individuals that, that feel like I have to say everything that's coming to my mind, I have to say everything that I feel, I have to express myself in everything that's going on, that helps people, it makes me nervous. That's not wisdom. to help you look into the mirror and say, okay, if I was to evaluate my life and really answer this question honestly, am I wise? Well, how do I know as wise? Just live your life. It takes what's the result of your decisions, right? All right. So let's move on. We've got these two different kinds of wisdom and it's going to help us kind of identify these things. So as you ask yourself those, that question, maybe this will help as well. Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and divine. something is actually demonic. When we, we look at the type of wisdom, and I say he, he's going to call this a form of wisdom because there is some logic to it. He talks about selfish ambition a lot, jealousy, envy, meaning the decisions that are being made in my life are grounded in things like I want what that person has, or I want to crush them in every way possible. Selfish ambition, it's, it's this desire to say, you know what, I deserve it, I've worked hard, it's a, it's a self-entitlement thing. I mean, we, we've all experienced this, right? We've all worked jobs where it's like, why is that person being promoted? I work harder. I'm just as educated. What's happening here? And selfish ambition ultimately says, I'm going to get it. No matter what it takes, no matter what gets in my way, I'm going to do everything that I possibly can. It's the Frank Sinatra method, right? like, I did it my way. That's selfish ambition. It's a great song, but not a great life philosophy. Right? Like, 
Self-absorbed ambition basically breaks down the two things. From self-absorbed ambition from an individual who's not a Christ follower, this is what the motivation in their heart would be. If I don't do it, nobody's going to do it for me. So I have to do it. And I don't care. Whatever it takes, I'll run over whoever I need to run over. I'll make whatever decision needs to be made. Because ultimately, my desire is to elevate myself to a position that I'm desiring to be at. That might be, like I said, a a position at at work. It might be a position of influence. It might be uh, obtaining something, right? It may be more money. It may be fame. Whatever it takes, I will get there. And what ends up happening is we we find ourselves lost with this understanding that that's the most important thing, so it doesn't matter what I do to achieve it. Right? It's you guys remember the movie Rudy, right? Great movie. This little guy wanted to play football, right? And he ends up becoming this hero. Now, the reality of Rudy is he never really played. Right? He played, I think, what, a couple of plays? And they carried him off the field? Why were they carrying him off the field? He wasn't out for selfish ambition. He had this desire to give everything that he had for the good of his team. Right? We also have athletes that will say, I crushed everyone along the way. Because what I really wanted was to be star, the famous one, the one that everybody looked up to. Um, it doesn't, you know, it, we, we live in a, a city that's pretty sports driven, and so I can think of some athletes, one in particular recently that is no longer here, that did not do a good job of elevating his team and ended up being removed, right, because it was all about him. Selfish ambition becomes a poison. It it causes us to behave in certain ways that that we wouldn't. So what does it look like as a Christ follower? Well, instead of saying, if they don't, I will, we'll say, if he doesn't, I will. Ever said that to God before? God? what's going on around me, and I believe myself to be more holy than that person and what you're doing in their life, I don't understand it, and since you're not moving me forward, I'm going to move myself forward. I think one of the greatest components of selfish ambition within the church around the world, I mean, especially in the United States, is this constant desire to, we, we, we have this thing where it's like, I have a definition of my head of what the blessings from the Lord look like in my life, and if He doesn't achieve these things in my life, then I'm going to go after them, and then when I get them, I'm going to take the credit, and if I don't get them, I'm going to blame the Lord anyway. familiar? I mean, when we look in the mirror, we're all like this as well. 
been a lot of arguments with the Lord that seemed to be revolving around a lot of this prideful, selfish ambition. God, you're not showing up the way I expected you to show up. God, I don't just want you to do it. I want you to do it the way I want you to do it, when I want you to do it, exactly in the methods that I desire you to do it. It's not even about the end result, Lord. It's about the journey, and I want it done my way. That's selfish ambition. What ends up happening is we end up vilifying the Lord instead of worshiping Him. This type of wisdom, I said, you know, he calls it wisdom, but Like I said, there's some logic to it. It's, I'm going to achieve what I want to achieve, and I have freedom to do that, and I'm going to go after it, and there's people that I can push out of the way, or there's things that I can do to elevate myself, and so there's some logic in saying, well, that will get me to where I want to be. But James is constantly reminding us that not only is it wrong, but he pushes it past that. He says that type of thinking goes into the realm of demonic. Why? Because ultimately, this is what Satan wants. I don't want. I don't want to be under God. I don't want to serve God. I want to be God. This is when things get heavy. Because we realize that when we're motivated by selfish ambition and our, and Scripture calls this demonic, that that's our same mentality. Or I don't want you to be God in my life, I want to be God of my life. And so I'll praise you when you get on board with the decisions that I make, but I'm going to blame you or curse you or attempt to walk away from you or change truth in my life. Ultimately, this was the issue at the very beginning of the fall, right? I mean, Eve's given a choice, Adam's given a choice, but ultimately it came down to God's holding out on me, and I can be better. I want to be the God of my life. We don't think this way often, and I think one of the reasons that we don't really process this is because it's really hard for us to grasp the idea that when we're processing this way, it's actually from the pit of hell. Because you don't want to look in the mirror and go, I'm being demonic. Right? We see this in Scripture, though. There's a point, right, where Jesus actually looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Those are strong words. In the midst of that story, it's fascinating. Peter had just declared something that nobody else had declared, right? Matthew 16, we've got disciples walking through Caesarea Philippi. This is a, a land that's so replete with idols. It was, it's like Jesus walked them into this place where every religion of the world was basically represented somehow. And in the midst of that, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? And Jesus immediately acknowledges, well, Peter, you're not that smart to figure that out, so that must have come from the Father, which means it was a wise saying, and it's going to lead to amazing fruit. And then Jesus continues to talk, and it's not very long when Peter says something stupid that isn't wise, right? And Jesus literally looks 
look someone in the eye and says, get behind me, Satan. What you said earlier was wise. What you're saying now is demonic. What you said earlier was from the Lord. What you're saying now is not. Fascinating. I don't, I, I'm trying to, I don't think I've ever had anybody say to me, I mean, I've had some horrific things said to me, but I don't think I've ever had anybody look me in the eye and say, you're Satan. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. You continue down that path, and things get worse and worse. We're looking in the mirror and we say, Do you consider yourself wise? James is helping us understand that. One thing we might say is wise is not what wisdom at all actually leads to our own destruction. And I think, I wonder sometimes if, in the decisions that I make, the decisions that you make, and certain behaviors that we have, and certain ways that we talk maybe to each other, and certain emotions that we have, whatever it is, what would it look like if we actually looked in the mirror and assessed, wow, Kevin, that was demonic. Instead of, oh, I blew it again. Oh, I made a mistake. When's the last time that Jesus told you, get behind me, Satan? And you heard it. Because I'm assuming if he said that to Peter, he's got to have said it to us at some point in our life. another kind of wisdom, and he describes it as beautiful. It doesn't lead to choices that end up destroying, it leads to choices that end up bringing life. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Let's talk about this a little bit, because I think it helps to understand, like, the differences, right? What I find fascinating is the words that James picks here, the Holy Spirit picks, are exactly contrary to this other wisdom that he's described as demonic, right? Selfish ambition doesn't produce peace. It produces a bunch of things, and peace isn't one of them. It produces anxiety. It produces war. It produces stress, it produces internal struggles, it produces anger. So the first thing he says is that when we look at this peace from above, it's first pure. What is pure? Pure just means clean. It's 
it's this ability to have something that is pure uh, without defect. Right? So when I think, like, when I think pure, the first thing that comes to me is water. Right? And that's probably because the water company's done a great job of advertising. Right? So when you think of pure, you think, okay, back in the 80s, I wasn't here, but I know that the Chelsea River in Boston was considered one of the dirtiest rivers in all of the world. The Charles River, sorry. There's a song about it, right? A lot of that dirty water. It, it stunk. It was bad. It was polluted. It was nasty. And you did, you wouldn't, it wasn't like the type of, of river that you would walk up to and be like, that, I'm thirsty and that looks so quenching. Right? Like, I don't know how thirsty you would have to be to actually, like, come to the conclusion that that's going to solve my problem. But you would have to get to a point where it's like, this is almost, I'm, not, I'm at the point of death. Right? I don't know. Uh, if you guys are James Bond fans, there's a, 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 a scene in, I think it's the second of the new James Bonds called uh, Quantum of something. And there's this scene where he's like, I'm going to drop you off in the desert, and here's a can of oil. And we're going to take bets on how long it's going to take you to start thinking about drinking again. Right? And I, apparently he does. We find out later in the movie. But that's not pure. When I think of pure water, I think like back when I was hiking, right, and I came across a stream and it was cold out, and I'm watching it flow down the rocks, and it looks so pure. Right? There's there's no trash around it. There's nothing floating in it. And there's moments where you just, and if you're exhausted and you're tired, you're just like, I want to dip my face in this water and let it refresh me. That's pure. Something that's pure creates a refreshment in it. It it, it feels refreshing when it's applied, right? So wisdom that comes from above creates a refreshment in you that is freeing. It's unpolluted. It's not, you don't have to question it over and over and over. It's obvious that it's pure in what it's doing in your life and in the life of others. That's a desire that that we should all have. It's just, man, this wisdom is so pure. It's, there's nothing corrupt about it. I can lean into it knowing that if I apply this type of wisdom that my life is going to be refreshed instead of feel heavy and polluted and weighty. It's going to bring refreshment instead of anxiety and fear and pain. And it doesn't all, we all have these moments in our life where we've made a decision, you made a decision and you're like, I know that was the wrong decision. I'm going to keep doing this. Right? It doesn't bring refreshment. One of the craziest, I think, examples I can give of this is think of a sin that's in your life that, or have, was in your life that you just struggled with over and over and over and it was like, man, I keep making a decision to do this and yeah, immediately, maybe it feels good or it has some benefit, but over time I'm watching this thing destroy me and it's bringing anxiety and pain into my life. Think about the moment when in wisdom, in Christ,
you gospeled yourself or somebody else gospeled you and you made the decision to stop and you actually did it. And the purity that washed over you, it was like you just dumped a bunch of weight. That's pure. The wisdom of Jesus is pure. Next, he describes it as peaceable. Peaceable. It's it's peace-loving. This isn't like peace, right? Or peace out. This is like, I desire peace. I desire peace. desire to do battle. I have I have a hard time killing things. That's silly, maybe. But I do. I, I, I just do. Like, I, my dad was a police officer, and when I was, I was growing up, he, he just says, Kevin, you can do anything you want besides going to law enforcement. Right? And so I was around guns a lot in California. I saw things, I've heard horrific stories, I have a high desire for, for justice, especially when people who are um, being manipulated are weak, but I, I learned, you know, my, my dad took me hunting when I was a kid, and I've told this story before, but I remember, like, we would go places, and he'd be like, that's the perfect shot, and I would miss intentionally, and he'd be like, man, you hit everything on the range, why can't you hit anything here, and I didn't want to tell him, like, I just don't want to shoot this one. Just don't. I don't care if I need it or not. I don't want to shoot it. I never carried a gun because I was always afraid that I'd pull the trigger. And I didn't want the consequences of my life being that way. Like, wow. And people will tell me, like, well, so if somebody broke into your house and started attacking your wife, you wouldn't do anything? And I'm like, come on. Of course I would. struggling, it breaks my heart. And I'm like, I, I don't, that doesn't, maybe it makes me weaker than other people, but I just struggle with it. So I learned early on that there's decisions in my life that because of who I am and how I'm built, that I don't want to make decisions that are going to force me to have this regret of taking somebody's life or taking a life and I just went, I'm just not doing it anymore. So I just don't hunt and I don't fish and it's a big point to me anyway. But, so, but I know, like, I had a friend who had something similar and he, his dad was a big hunter and so he constantly went and Because that's what my dad wants me to be, so I'm going to keep doing it. And he just 
described to me that there's this angst that was constantly building in him. That there was no peace in his in his heart. So he would go out to hang with his dad, and they would be doing something that in his for his dad was going, this is peaceable, and for him it was creating more anxiety than anything else. Right? But I'm using an example because it's simple. Everybody's built a little bit different. What creates anger and anxiety in you may not create anger and anxiety in me, but we have to understand what it is. When we talk about like peace, it's not just peace with each other. That's really important. But it's also internal peace. When we look at wisdom, the decisions that we make in Christ, the decisions that we make when we understand who we are in Jesus, that creates peace in our heart, even if it's hard. It was hard at one point telling my dad, like, I don't want to hunt anymore. And he's like, oh, well, like, I just don't. Like, let's do something else. We golf. Right? Which then brought him angst. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was not very peaceful for him, right? There's, there's this need in the Christ-following world that if we're truly going to see the gospel like, impact us and impact other people, that it's grounded in this idea of peace. I've come to the conclusion really nobody wins war, right? And I don't, I don't, I'm not talking about like foreign war. I understand that we live in this imperfect world of war if necessary, but I also believe nobody ever really wins. Right? We have to fight, but in the end, it's just devastation. The same thing happens when we're at war with each other. Nobody really wins. It just creates pain. Or when you're at war with yourself, nobody really wins. There's just pain. There's angst. Imagine a life where you can sit back at night and close your eyes and feel at peace with who you are and all of the decisions that you've made and how you've treated other people and just go, gentle, it doesn't sound very manly, right? But I think the, I think it's the exact opposite. I think gentleness requires a strength that is so difficult. It is so hard sometimes to be gentle to someone that you want to wring their neck. Let's be honest. Like, as a pastor, one of the requirements of an elder by scripture is that we're gentle with even the people that we have to admonish. That we set aside our own pride, maybe even our righteous anger at times, to say we have to be gentle. We have to be, and that requires some strength. It requires strength to say, I'm going to handle this in a way that's going to benefit you and not destroy you in the process. Gentleness is... I, I really believe that gentleness is probably the greatest form of strength that we have in Christ. 
not necessarily put up that way. It says when we're wise in Christ or wise in the Lord, some of the fruit of those decisions will be gentleness will come out of us. We'll handle really difficult situations. And the person that maybe you're even handling a difficult situation with, maybe you ever had this where you're like, I have to have a really hard conversation with someone. And afterwards they're like, thank you so much. It's not always on you. But when we're gentle with people, oftentimes they welcome our wisdom even more. Right? Let me explain to you how this feels all better for you. And I'm saying this because I care about you, not because I want to be in my way. The wisdom of Christ is gentle. Open to reason. I mean, this one doesn't need a lot of commentary. Open to reason. The wisdom of the Lord says, my ways aren't always best. My first idea may not be a great one. I'm in this with other people. The body of Christ is not just me. It is extended to every believer on the planet. And he's gifted other people with just as much, just as much, or possibly more of the gifts that I've been given, which means reasonable means that you're teachable, that you're open, that you're willing to understand that there are other people who have talents and gifts, and they might be better than yours. And so you're you're reasonable with how things flow. Mercy and good fruits. Mercy, mercy is giving somebody something that they don't deserve. It's you don't you don't deserve my gentleness. You don't deserve my kindness. You don't deserve my reasonableness. But I'm going to give it to you anyway. That's mercy. The wisdom of the Lord creates in us the ability to be merciful to those who don't deserve it. Good fruit. I always like this analogy because everybody in here has bit into a piece of bad fruit. Like, I like nice, crisp apples. When you bite into an apple that's mealy, it makes me go, Whoa. right? It's, it, the texture isn't right flavor isn't right. There's there's something that where you like have you ever been like just popping grapes in your mouth, right? And they're awesome. And then you realize you just threw one in that's like squishy and soft and it's like rotten. And you're like mm. right? And it's like I don't want any more grapes. There's something about fruit, like I don't know what fruits you guys like. There's something about fruit that is like if you're eating like whatever your favorite fruit is and it's perfect. There's something about it. You just go, oh, this can't be replicated, right? I love strawberries. We don't get good strawberries here. But in California, we have amazing strawberries. And so I miss strawberries. I miss, like, I remember, like, hot summer day in the desert of California getting, like, 
love to sing with you. Just kind of sums everything up for us, right? That a harvest of righteousness is shown in peace by those who make peace. How do I know if I'm employing the wisdom of God or not? Two things. Look in the mirror. What's going on in here? Are you at peace? Jesus says that he provides a peace that surpasses all understanding. It requires some things from us to get there. A lot of these things require that we employ the wisdom of God. We can't say, Lord, I'm going to keep doing it my way, and I'm going to be motivated by selfish ambition, but you, since you promised a peace that surpasses all understanding, I'm going to blame you because I'm doing it my way and not getting there. There's some, there's some things that need to be happening in your life to experience the peace that surpasses all understanding. And if you're doing those things, I promise it will happen in time. So we look in the mirror and we say, is my heart at peace? And the decisions I'm making and the things that are going on is, is my life, when I look in the mirror, is it reflecting Jesus more or is it reflecting more of me? Is it this mentality of like John the Baptizer that says, I must decrease, he must increase. Is that the call of my life? Is that what I'm witnessing? If it's opposite, if we're saying, I must increase, he must decrease, because it needs to be more about me, you know if you know Christ, or if you don't, there's no peace there in that. Because it's dependent upon you wholeheartedly. It's not only not peaceful, it's discouraging. So the first way to evaluate is what's happening here. The second way about we evaluate is what's happening behind us. It's really difficult to say that you're employing the wisdom of God and every time you leave a room, it's devastating. Or everything's broken. just what's going on in here, but we have to look around us as well. Like, if the peace of God produces, I mean, if the wisdom of God produces peace, it's going to produce peace in me, it's going to produce peace in others, it's going to, I'm going to impact others in a way that's gospel. It doesn't mean that it's always perfect, it doesn't mean that there's not arguments, it doesn't mean that there's not pain, it doesn't mean that there's not struggle, but it means that there should be things other than that too. our motivation to do it? Jesus. Jesus employed the wisdom of God. And if you haven't, then we wouldn't have the privilege of being able to say, Lord, thank you for living the life that I was supposed to live, for dying the death that I deserve for being raised three days later and conquering sin, sick, and death forever for me. Jesus employing every one of these components, and we'll look at this, it's a component of the gospel of Christ. Jesus was pure, he was peaceable, he was 
gentle. He was open to reason. He was full of mercy and good fruits. He was impartial and sincere. We, the beautiful thing about the wisdom of God is all it's asking us to do is to employ that which Jesus did for us in a very real way. So the question is, are you? So here's what we're going to do. I, I don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing here. I would say there's a couple things that need to happen. Um, some of you are going to be repellent. You're going to repel the idea of even putting a mirror up because things are so hard. And I would say if you're here today and you don't know who Jesus is, maybe you're on this journey or trying to figure out, I would say before you can employ and experience this type of peace, you have to know the person that can give it to you. So your decision probably needs to be something like, I need to know who Jesus is. And I would encourage you, you can come talk to me if you like, but turn to the person next to you and say, do you know Jesus? Yes. And we chat. And we have a conversation. For the church, I would say, our mirror needs to constantly be up. We need to ask these internal and external questions. And we need to be willing to humble ourselves down and say, Lord, where am I not employing the wisdom that you give me in Christ in my life? Where is there angst here? Where is there angst here? And what needs to change? And because we're never stuck, and it's always grounded in the power of the gospel for us to change, you have the ability to begin to make that change in Christ now. We take communion here every Sunday. If you're a believer in Christ, you are welcome to partake. And the reason that we take communion every Sunday is because in this constant desire to be reminded that it's Christ's sacrifice, it's Christ's gospel, it's Christ's living that allows the changes to be, that need to be made in us to be as Christ Lord, we were, were reminded we can't do the work. He has to do the work. But are you willing to let him? So the band's going to come up. We're going to sing a couple of songs. And communion elements are here on both sides. And you're welcome to partake at any point that you feel you're ready. Uh, I'm going to pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us enough that you'll take us exactly as